Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Inclusive democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, a twice-weekly podcast from the Australian National University which takes a look at all things political here and abroad. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and where my office uh, is uh, based in ANU, I can see straight across the lake, Burley Griffin to Capitol Hill, where many good decisions are taken and many bad ones as well, I guess. As we record this, just the second episode of Democracy Sausage for the Year, MPs and Senators and their countless staff and officials are filing back into Parliament for what may or may not be the first session of an election year. But there are many factors to be considered before we know the answer to that question. Things like the economy as the $100 billion JobKeeper scheme is wound up in March. What will that show us about zombie companies and perhaps zombie jobs? It could be a bleak picture. We don't know. The economic picture otherwise is ostensibly good at this stage, better than we expected, but it's very hard to read all of these things with so much um, government involvement in the economy at the moment. Then there's the virus and the vaccine rollout. How will it go? Will it change everything or will it not? And of course, climate change, the policy that broke the polity. Australia has marked itself out as an international laggard, having negotiated special deals to pollute more and then dragging the chain after that. But now with the end of the odious Trump administration, it's clear the pressure is on to catch up, or at least look like we're trying to do so. To discuss these issues, I've got a great panel here of ANU experts today, all of them familiar to Democracy Sausage listeners. Professor Ken Baldwin is Director of the Energy Change Institute at the ANU. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you, Mark. Dr. Arne Greta Hunter is a physician and cardiologist with a strong focus on patient-centred care. She's a member of the Climate Change Institute, and she's the Human Futures Fellow at the ANU College of Health and Medicine. And of course, she is a co-host of the 
podcast, which is it? The Policy Forum podcast. The Policy yes. Forum podcast, one yeah. of the very popular outputs from uh, from this Crawford School of Public Policy, where we are uh, producing this podcast today. Welcome to you, Anna Greta. Thanks, Mark, for having me. And Professor John Hewson is uh, at the Crawford School of Public Policy as well. Of course, he's an eminent economist and at one stage many years ago was leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. John, great to see you back in the ANU studio. Oh, thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Let's start with last week just uh, because it's sort of part of, the, I guess, the overall climate dynamic and the climate change stuff is the uh, uh, issue we're particularly interested in today, I guess. But... Um, Anthony Albanese last week swapped out his climate change spokesman, Mark Butler, for Chris Bowen. Just keen to get your off-the-cuff thoughts about what that tells us about where the opposition is on this. We know that, uh, of course, the the world is suddenly moving with the Biden administration coming in and making climate change such a priority. We can see sort of atmospheric moves, um, a, a change, I think, in the political atmospherics, if not the actual you know, literally in the atmosphere uh, around this. And yet the move to take Butler out and put in, take the left Mark Butler out of the position and put the rights Chris Bowen in, some people might interpret that as potentially Labor going weak on its climate change stance, aware that in fact it took very ambitious targets to the last election and lost the election. And there's a bit of a narrative around that. Anna Greta, what, what was your sort of instinctive feel about uh, putting Butler in, taking taking Butler out and putting Bowen in? Look, I, I think it's about probably reframing the narrative, and I don't think we've seen that storyline emerge yet from the Labor Party. I, you know, I've spent time with both uh, Mark Butler and Chris Bowen. They both understand climate science fairly well, um, and I would be still optimistic that they will come to, out with a, a compelling climate policy. Maybe that they end up with the same sort of thing that they were doing, but I think what this does is gives them an opportunity to reboot their, their perspective. Um, I think that's what we're seeing in the American context. And I think one of the really powerful parts of the new Biden administration is partly the policy stuff that they're doing, which is tremendously important. But they're changing the narrative in a really profound way, unleashing science again so that we can look at the information and actually acknowledge the tremendous threats that are, are, are ahead of us. And I think either Mark Butler or Chris Bowen are both in good positions to, to take that narrative that's been unleashed by that new American administration and run with it. So I'm, I'm still probably optimistic. I'm not seeing it as a, necessarily a, a backward move. If you think about Australian uh, state politics more broadly. You know, one of the most compelling actors in this scene at the moment is Matt Keane. He's a Liberal Party member and part of a, a Liberal government. And so right and left may not be the issue here. It may simply be being able to take an adequate stance and go with it. Yeah, but it's interesting that it came after Joel Fitzgibbon, a, a, a very pro-coal, a sort of anti-cosmopolitan, you know, thing that he's running, campaign that he's running at the moment. He was explicitly and publicly calling for Butler's removal saying that Labor's – he described Labor's 45% by 2030 target taken to the last election as, quote, crazy. Um, and he obviously tagged it with a lot of the reason why Labor didn't win. I mean, there was a big policy agenda that Labor took, but this was one of the, uh, you know, the, the big things. And there was the whole debate during the election campaign about what it was going to cost the economy. Was it going to cost growth? How much was it going to cost? And why didn't Labor know about it if it was proposing it? Allowed Morrison to sort of run this line, I won't take any policies to uh, in, in this space to the electorate. I won't commit to any targets without being able to tell Australians the cost. Albanese's initial response to Joel Fitzgibbon's public campaign against Butler was to say, no, I'm not moving him. He's doing a great job. 
and then only a couple of months later he's done so. And I, I suppose, therefore, it's not an unreasonable suspicion to have that maybe uh, he is I moving. I understand that as well. But I, I think, again, I think the, the global narrative is shifting. I think there's an increasing recognition that, in fact, the you know the craziness here is thinking that there's long-term employment in coal um, and that the enthusiasm for the coal market globally is diminishing and the enthusiasm for Australia to continue investment in coal is really quite a significant political issue. It may be that putting someone in there who's been a shadow treasurer uh, adds to the economic argument that a transition away from burning fossil fuel might be effective. Is that your feeling as well, John? Or do you have any view about this? Well, I was surprised, actually, that Albo did this. I thought if he just sat where he was at the last election, the world was coming to him. Mm. And uh, the, the, the resurgence of, of interest globally as resp- in response to Biden and Johnson and you know, the commitments made by a number of very significant countries around the world and business leaders and business organisations and civil society groups and so on. I mean, it was all coming back to where the Labor Party was and this is a tougher line. Um, it reeks to me of just a factional deal. And um, I don't think you set our climate priorities according to a factional <laughs> priority. Um, and, you know, if you look at it objectively, Butler is probably the most knowledgeable and experienced climate uh, person in the parliament, uh, and it's odd to sacrifice him for this. Bowen, if he carries any legacy, is that he, he had the economic policies, which I think were far more important in determining the outcome of the last election than were the climate policies. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because yeah. if you, even if you accept Fitzgibbon's interpretation, mm. the two front benches who held the, you know, who, who are arguably most culpable for the loss, mm. if you accept that interpretation, are those two. I I still think the major factor was Shorten's unpopularity. But in in policy terms, I don't think the climate issue was as significant as the potential for a wealth tax or the potential for, you know, that was taken out of some of the economic policies. So I do think it was a surprising shift. Did you think, were you concerned at all, though, when Shorten couldn't answer the question about what it was going to mean in growth, that it it was like they hadn't prepared for that question when it came up? And Morrison jumped all over it then and said, well, you know, here we go. We've got this ideologically inspired, you know, policy, which is going to be very significant. And Mm. they they just don't have an answer for what it's going to do to growth. Yeah, well, having failed myself in that respect, I'd have to say that um, <laughs> that uh, I was surprised they didn't spend more time trying to explain where they were and why they were doing or advocating what they were. And the costs of not acting. And really. the costs of not acting. I mean, uh, it's quite easy to argue the counter case that uh, the costs of inaction far outweigh the costs of action. If there are costs of action, because they don't need to be my, in my terms, it can be a positive story. So in those terms, yes, I was surprised that uh, this is sort of trying to clean up after the event, but probably the timing's wrong, and I I think that they will suffer as a result of that. I know the focus of the ALP is let's just focus on the job dimension or the jobs dimension of climate and uh, talk about the potential for jobs in renewable energy or in uh, electrification of the vehicle fleet or in generative agriculture or whatever. That seems to be the their argument, but they've got a long way to go to mount that successfully. Uh, and I think Butler himself was actually doing that. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's an odd change. And I, I think it just comes back to base politics. I think Albo has had some pressure on his leadership, not real in terms of the restrictions that apply to actually change the leader, but, um, you know, which was a factional deal to swap one for the other. And I don't think that's going to carry them in good stead in the longer term. 
Well, Ken, what's your view about uh, about the sort of atmospherics of this? Did it uh, suggest to you that Labor is trying to find a way out of its forty five percent target, or is it just just sort of buying time? I think that uh, apart from the internal politics of the situation, uh, what we have now is a, yet, yet another you know very serious heavy hitter in the job. Uh, it brings maybe an economic perspective that it didn't have quite as strongly uh, in the past. Uh, so I think uh, a bit of rebalancing of the uh, of the external facing aspects of the of the role uh, is 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 a, a positive thing, uh, but I don't think that we can imply that there's been any policy shift in the in the meantime. Uh, that's yet to come out, and to imply that um, you know that uh, predictions of uh, the change cause the change is a bit like saying that the cock crowing in the morning causes the sun to come up, right? So uh, I don't think we can necessarily uh, attribute. Uh, uh, any um, prescience to the statements of Joel Fitzgibbon prior to the uh, the move? Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, um, the, the there's there's some merit anyway, even if you um, even if you have objections to the sort of object of Joel Fitzgibbon's campaign about you know pulling Labor back from ambitious climate change policy. There is obvious political merit in. Or reality in the argument that there are constituencies, there are parts of the Labor base which view the whole climate change question differently. And he's articulating that position. He's talking about the jobs that will be lost in a rapid transition away from coal. He's talking about the people who could be the economic losers. And he's trying to sort of tie that to an argument about, well, you know, this is, this is true labor and this is what, la- where labor's going is you know, taking it away from its industrial base. So, that economic focus that you talk about that um, that Bowen might be able to bring more strongly to it, that's a way of bridging that that uh, divide, isn't it? It's a way of talking to those people and, and, and if it is framed in that economic way, then perhaps it's a way of talking to them about the sorts of uh, transition programs that might be in place so that they don't become the losers. Indeed. And, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, showing that there are more jobs in renewables or that you can transition coal jobs into renewables jobs. That, you know, in, in fact, is a fairly simplistic way of looking at it. What you can say is that this is a transition we're going to have to have anyway. As John indicates, it's going to be much more expensive not to have the transition and do something about climate change than actually do something about climate change. And Secondly, uh, renewables are so much cheaper than any other form of uh, electricity generation at the moment and into the future, even accounting for the fact that there is uh, intermittency in supply and you have to deal with that through storage and transmission, that uh, cheaper forms of energy will benefit the whole economy anyway, irrespective of the benefits of climate change. So I think the economic arguments are very powerful. Uh, we do have to be careful about the transition. There has to be a lot of work done on ensuring that uh, social dislocation doesn't happen. Uh, but nonetheless, this can be done and uh, we ought to focus on not just the uh, the benefits for the people immediately in the industry, but across the entire economy. Now, John, all this argument about the 45% that Labor took to the election last time is kind of... Um it's, it's a sort of a strange argument. It's almost like a happening in, in abstracted from reality because the numbers show, as some of the work that you've been doing, uh, show that the 45% target was not uh, too ambitious. It was perhaps insufficiently ambitious. Well, that's right. I mean, if you go back to the time where they set the target and made the commitment in Paris uh, in 2014, the advice of the Climate Change Authority was a target of 45 to 65% um, percent. Uh, off a 2005 base. 
and um, the government went for a political target, not a not an economic target or not a a meaningful climate target, a political target of twenty six to twenty eight percent. And so, what we've done recently in a, in a panel is to re-estimate the modelling that the Climate Change Authority did and apply it to the current circumstances. And it would say that um, you know the commitments that have been made are inadequate from Australia's point of view, from the point of view of the contribution we need to make globally to the soft Paris target of uh, less than two degree warming by 2050. Uh, and and way short of what would be required for the harder line Paris target of one and a half degree warming by 2050. And if you look at the numbers for that, I mean it's a, it's a um, it's a 50 percent at least a 50 percent reduction in emissions by 2030 for Australia, and a 67 percent reduction in emissions by 2035. So the ALP target was actually quite moderate mm. compared to, to compared to that. And in these terms, I mean. We have this image being created now that the Prime Minister would like to achieve net zero by 2050 and he'll ultimately, I think, be dragged to doing that in the run-up to COP26 in November in, in Glasgow. Uh, and um, that will be far inadequate because, uh, you know, tw- the, the end game, tw- net zero by 2050, is not enough if the 2030 target remains where it is. So in those circumstances, I mean, it's a... It, it's a it's a game that's being played rather than seriously addressing the magnitude of the challenge and the urgency of the challenge. It's it's an extraordinary situation uh, when you think about it that we have politicians so timid about naming something 30 years away. Normally they're... Uh... You know, they're normally just fine with uh, sort of things they're not going to have to actually deliver. But this is so intensely politicised, it's so mm. freighted with with sort of left-right politics that uh, the Prime Minister feels like he can't even do something. And as you say, it, it, it's pretty meaningless saying you're committed to net zero, 50, net zero by 2050 if you don't start then acknowledging that this is going to involve some fairly steep action in a much shorter, on a much shorter horizon than that. So it's extraordinary that we find ourselves in a situation where the PM can't do that. And Australia's a pariah, really, in, in, in the development. There's no logical reason for it except a perception of political expediency. What's in the short-term best interests of the Prime Minister in this year, which will be an election year? Which are internal interests, really. But, because, and only internal. Because even in the electorate, there yeah. wouldn't be any backlash. electorate's way ahead on the argument. Uh, business community's way ahead on the argument. So uh, it, it's just, it, just it, it is surprising that they're prepared to persist with this game and I mean, I know they hear all the arguments about a small rump that determines the outcome in the LNP. I mean, I find that nonsense. But um, it's an excuse rather than than an explanation for why they play this game. What's your view, Annika? Uh, I think well, I think we're stuck, aren't we? Not being able to use there's still this this sense that it's political uh, ho- a political hot potato at a federal level. And you, you've seen state governments being, I think, increasingly articulate. They're able to discuss climate change. They're able to look at how that, that might impact their communities. You see local local government engagement into the area. And yet federally, there's still this fear. And I think we have to get over it. It really is time to get over it. The longer it goes on, the harder, the, 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 the steeper the U-turn, the, the more complicated that turnaround will be. Um, and I, I think the difference between the last election, you know, in 2019 and this election is Black Summer in between, where for almost all Australians, the, the conceptual risk of climate change became a very real thing. Um, and and I, so I think as a, as an, as a population, 
populace. We're ready for action. I think the politics is lagging behind what we need. Well, right now we have a situation where we don't have a commitment to 2050. We have the 26% target for 2030, which everyone or most people outside the government regard as wholly inadequate. And as you say, makes the task after that much more, much steeper again. And that is at least by default, the position of the opposition as well. The opposition doesn't have a 2030 target. It's walked away from that. So it's 2030 target functionally at the moment is the government's. It has, we we hear about it probably not wanting to have a 2030 target at all and and sort of perhaps name a uh, 2035 target. Um, The climate targets panel is saying that this this is just going to get exponentially sort of steeper by, Mm. by this sort of inaction. I mean, it's... It's extraordinary, isn't it? We are the most climate-vulnerable developed nation in the world. It's been seen in the recent Climate Council report that came out. I mm. highly recommend reading that. Um, we are going to see an increasing amount of uh, health manifestations from climate change, of environmental manifestations of climate change. We'll see the beautiful parts of our country that we love very much uh, affected in very adverse ways. And I, it, it takes some courage, I think, to act, but it, it really is that we're well and truly past the time where, where we need to take this seriously. And I, I think in terms of the, the, in fact, the, the reshuffling issue within the Labor Party, I don't think our population's ready for more of the political drama. You know, I, I think we've had enough of that. And I think particularly coming out of 2020, where the, the emotional and psychological impacts of the pandemic and the bushfire affected such a large proportion of us, we're really ready to see a more positive vision for the future, to see how we can get there, to see that road. And I, I have to say, I don't think either party are really providing that future vision that is so badly needed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if they showed le- it's an opportunity to actually show leadership, leadership. now on climate and yep. the community will just go with you. Yep. Yeah. You, you're you're yep. making a problem for yourself by not doing it. That's what I find so yep. hard to understand in terms of even the short-term politics of it. Well, the government's shifted, Ken, uh, in its in its rhetoric very gradually on this, but um, we're, we're, you know, you and I have talked before on this podcast about the, um, what was it, the sort of $18 billion of investment they were going to direct into five key areas. Um, the emphasis is very much now on technology. They, you know, the, the, the political tagline is technology, not taxes. Are they going to be saved by technology? I mean, is it after all of this political heat and argument and 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 all of the vitriol, could could they be sort of rescued, vindicated in part by the technology? Uh, that's a, that's a, a, an argument I think that uh, will uh, only be tested uh, over time when it's too late. When when you can't really do anything more about it, and yeah. the technology is really just taken over. I think what you can say is that technology is incredibly important. It's technology that's driving the shift to renewables because it's getting cheaper, more efficient, uh, and there are new capabilities being developed. What we cannot say is if we'd had good policy in place over the last decade or so that aligned climate and energy, whether this would have happened more quickly and more cheaply. And for a government that is very much about keeping electricity prices down, that is a very powerful argument to say you need to get on the policy bandwagon as well as on the technology bandwagon to make the technology acceleration happen more quickly. And I think that is where we uh, really need to focus. Uh, You can, uh, of course, be a a technology taker from the rest of the world, which Australia always is and probably always will be. 
But if you have the right policies in place, and many countries have shown this, you can accelerate the technological development. And Norway, for example, with its electric vehicle policy, is a perfect example of that. Uh, if we had had a carbon price, which everyone is screaming at the government to have from every part of the, of the business and financial sector, uh, we could have accelerated the development of renewables in this country because it would have been made even cheaper by reducing the financial risk of investment. And uh, and that's true across the board. I mean, it's not just renewables that would have benefited from that. So policy drives technology, even if technology is leading the charge. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Before the break, we were talking about technology. Of course, battery storage is a critical part of that. There's some big battery projects going on around Australia at the moment. Um, I just, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Ken. Um, just h- how viable are batteries now? They're big, is the technology moving so quickly that they, you know, the idea of putting batteries, uh, in, I mean, there's talk of putting a, an enormous battery where Liddell Power Station uh, is located at the moment. Um, I understand it's quite critical if you are going to have these facilities to have them on transmission line routes so that you can obviously get the power you know to them and from them um but it, it this is this is one of those big technological advances that's going to make a difference isn't it that's right uh, as we get closer to 100% renewables we will need to have the ability to store energy when the renewable energy generators aren't operating uh, but uh, we are a geographically diverse country, and so somewhere it'll be windy compared to other places, uh, sunny um, maybe on some parts of the, uh, the continent than others, or in areas where there's less cloud. So what you need to do is to be able to connect those areas and to provide the ability to switch power between places that can generate and, and the load centres. So equally important to storage is transmission infrastructure. And so we've done some numbers which show that the better the transmission backbone of the electricity system, the less storage you need. Now, that's not to say you don't need storage and batteries are going to be a big part of this, but they're not the only part. Pumped hydro, in particular off-river pumped hydro, so you don't need to dam rivers. You can do this just with big reservoirs at the top and bottom of hills. These will be the the sort of heavy lifters in the storage area when we get close to 100% renewable energy. We're not going to do it all with batteries. Uh, batteries are advancing rapidly, uh, but there will be you know limitations in supply chains, et cetera, et cetera, which means that we won't be able to supply all the storage needs from batteries. 
so we need to develop off-river pumped hydro in particular. Snowy 2.0 will play a role. And as we get uh, close to 100% renewables, we need to build more transmission in to keep the cost of storage down as well. John, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, look, I have a slightly different view on storage. I mean, and I declare an interest. We've been working on thermal storage, graphite-based thermal storage, which has enormous geographic flexibility. It's at least as cost competitive as as, uh, pumped hydro. And uh, there is an insignificant trade-off, I think, between transmission and storage. And this is a difficult judgment to make. I mean, one of the problems we've had, I think, is that the uh, history of our grid was that um, power stations were built near coal mines initially, not necessarily where they should have been in terms of demand. And of course, when you had wind and solar projects, they weren't necessarily located ideally either. And so that's become quite a big management problem for uh, AEMO. And um, Batteries, electric batteries have come along as a short-term fillip. You know, they can deal with the short-term in, inconsistency in supplier power, but they're not a longer-term answer. And one of the problems we've got now is, of course, with such a heavy incidence of rooftop solar that in the middle of the day, uh, solar power is, is not worth much. Yet in the evening peak or the morning peak, it's very significant. So batteries that are capable of shifting that load from the middle of the day to the to the evening peak or from the middle of the night with, say, strong wind to the morning peak, uh, have got a role to play. And they smooth the process out such that you can then make a judgment about what transmission lines you should have. And so I, it's a very complicated uh, situation for EMO to deal with. And it's quite – there's not a lot of objective analysis, I think, within that. I mean, Ken's team have been doing quite a lot of that. But uh, it's a long way to go in terms of getting a, a defensible outcome. And AEMO basically admits that. <laughs> so, you know, there's some serious management problem. But uh, I do think that uh, batteries have a very important role to play if you can make them cost competitive and, and uh, geographically flexible to move away from the constraints of the system, which were built around coal mines and, you know, where the sun's good and the wind's strong. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think there's another point to add here, yeah. John, that um, – that batteries not only provide energy storage, they also provide a very rapid response in, you know, fractions of a second to glitches in the power system. Yeah. And so, you know, when there's a lot of intermittency happening and, uh, you know, even when there are things like extreme weather events, as we, you know, saw in South Australia a few years ago, batteries have the ability to kick in on millisecond timeframes and adjust the frequency of the alternating current supply to stabilise it and to keep systems operating. And there's no other uh, storage mechanism that can do that that quickly. So batteries will always play a key role in stabilising the electricity network. So when they talk about gas as a sort of peaking supply, even mm-hmm. that even that can't come in that quickly. No, that's right. And neither can pumped hydro. And Greta, it's really um, been fascinating to watch this in a political sense because um, – People who are you know, strongly in favour of renewables have been backing it for a long time. I think, uh, and I'm talking generally here, I mean, obviously some will have understood this quite keenly, but many others I don't think did really understand the sorts of issues um, uh, that both John and Ken have been talking about in terms of the, the, the characteristics of the system and the economics of the system. I mean, if it's not profitable to be providing power um, through uh, previous, you know, fossil fuel means, if it's not profitable to be doing so because you're competing with much, much, much cheaper renewable energy that's coming in, then you won't be there at the time when that renewable energy isn't coming in, i.e. when there's 
you know, as Ken said, when the sun stops shining or the wind stops blowing or there's some extreme weather event, you won't have that, that, uh, um, that those, you know, traditional power supplies anymore because they've gone out of business. That, that was something that I think everyone kind of learned in the immediate aftermath of that South Australian statewide blackout in mm. 2016, I think it was. Mm. But the solution to that, of course, was battery storage, as Ken's just explained the reasons for that, um, yeah. that are, uh, you know, the ways in which we can make our energy system resilient, uh, particularly against extreme weather, is not not through coal-fired te- technology or burning fossil well, fuel, but yeah. through other technological solutions. Correct. Um, I was going to ask a question of these two, actually, but yeah. about the local renewable energy, the, 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 this tendency or this, this little trend, I guess, in, I've just spent some time in Northern Victoria again, towns that are becoming independent off grid or generating their own energy supply and whether the micro grid environment or regional basis for energy as opposed to looking at Australia as a national grid, should we be thinking more about where we need the energy and how we use it in those environments? Well, don't forget that Australia is one of the most urbanised nations on earth. So we'll never get away from the fact that, you know, 95% of people live in big cities. We've got huge demand loads in those areas. But uh, certainly uh, we're also uh, really a, a very dispersed community when it comes to the regional areas. Uh, and there is a trend to uh, to microgrids, uh, and it's being particularly uh, pushed by some of the uh, electricity companies who who want to see uh, continuous supply, but they know that it's difficult at the end mm. of a very long and skinny connection mm. to keep that and guarantee it through bushfires, mm. through extreme weather, and all the rest of it. Yep. So, so they're actually looking at at, at helping communities to uh, be self sustaining, uh, and 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 this makes enormous sense, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, you know disasters and mm. and all the rest of it. So uh, so yeah, that's a that's a real opportunity. It's not a solution for the vast majority of the population, but it is for for rural communities potentially. And and it'll be great uh, as we've seen in this terrible year of bushfires uh, to be able to rely on your local energy supplies rather than uh, at the end of some long skinny connection mm. that gets taken out by bushfire. Mm. Yeah, no, I know they were looking at that the place where I was last week. Uh, that particularly bushfire vulnerable community being able to make sure you're, that that community hub, the space where the evacuation centre was then off-grid um, and reliable through through extreme weather events. Um, but it's an interesting question because it gets us back to what we're using the energy for and where we should then be using it. If in manufacturing sector, uh, perhaps we can build that closer to more easily um, accessible renewable energy supply. And that would benefit, I think, significantly from federal government policy and uh, that word again, leadership. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree that there's a role for these community projects and not just on economic grounds, not just on in energy grounds, but also in community, in a sense of community. People want to be able to be part of the process, part of the solution, particularly in the areas of you know, bushfire that, or extreme weather event prone areas. Uh, and you can see I've w- worked on a number of these around Australia. They are, they, they have got a base, they have got a role and the power authorities are, the power companies are actually encouraging them. Giving them power purchase agreements and so on to make it to make it work, um, but um, you know it's a it, it's a it's a difficult. Um, I guess it, it's been taken a step further. Most of the state governments now want to have regional solutions in terms of industrial zones and and so on built around power sources. Uh, to some extent, that makes sense, but again, you you know won't be the necess- won't necessarily be the, the magic ingredient that brings the big foreign companies into into Wagga or <laughs> Dubbo or or wherever. But they are moving that direction, so it's um, it's not terribly well coordinated right now. And to some extent, the states are, as we've seen, competitive federalism, They're starting to compete more with each other mm. as to uh, how they can do that. But 
there is a logical role for these sort of solutions. It's just another. It's just <laughs> another example of the way that mm. we're sort of getting around the government. Yeah, uh, you know, business is doing it. States are doing it. Local governments are doing it. Towns, communities, mm. individuals are doing it. Getting around the lack of proper, uh, you know, reasonable policy settings in this area and finding other ways to to get to this sort of solution. It was interesting when we think back to uh, the debate about Adani, uh, you know, the ongoing discussion about supplying uh, Australian coal to India and, 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 um, and, and what that was going to do. One of the key arguments that was put up by proponents was that this was going to lift 100 million people out of, mm. out of um, you know, effectively the, the Stone Age as far as their electricity went. But... Others say that uh, the solution for for um, a lot of the Indian population outside the cities is is this distributed power model mm. where you actually have because uh, they don't have the transmission lines we were talking about mm. before. Yeah, well, I think this is a bring in the, the other issue, which is that it's not just about the domestic economy; it's about the export economy. And Australia has enormous renewable energy resources, and we can tap into those resources the same way that we've tapped into our mineral resources and our agricultural resources in the past and export the energy that we have in abundance in this country. And uh, and again, you know, the private sector is leading the way. And I think what we're seeing is just simply overlaying our current economic opportunities with this vast new opportunity of exploiting renewable energy for export, uh, either through direct export of electricity, through undersea cables, mm. through Indonesia and beyond, or through the generation of hydrogen from water through electrolysis, passing electricity through water from renewable electricity, uh, and exporting the stored energy and the hydrogen. And this can also be converted into ammonia. Uh, and why do we want to make ammonia? Ammonia may well be the, the shipping fuel of the future to replace heavy uh, fuel oil in the shipping industry. So we have enormous opportunities. And even if only a fraction of a percent of those are realised, this could completely transform our export future. And uh, we don't need to uh, even talk about replacing coal exports. This will just lay straight over the top of our existing export portfolio. Does it frustrate you that you can talk about these things with such optimism and there's such inertia officially about them? I think the, 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 the inertia uh, is actually um, in the... Uh, the realisation of the opportunity rather than in any regulatory or other uh, impediment. Uh, it, and, and, and I think that's changing. I think, I think both sides of politics now understand the export opportunities we have in front of us. Uh, and, you know, they're not putting things in the way. Maybe they could remove some uh, impediments, but, uh, but certainly there is enormous opportunity there to be grasped by the commercial sector. And we already have uh, major developments underway, the Asian Renewable Energy Hub in northwestern Australia, uh, Sun Cable in the Northern Territory, which are looking to export uh, both electricity and ammonia uh, as products of the Australian renewable energy future. Let's go to the private members bill that Zali Stegel has before the parliament. There's a, there's a lot of interest in this bill. Um, Labor has indicated that it would like to see the private members bill um, debated, um, and that doesn't always happen with private members bills. In fact, fairly rarely do they you know get to the point of being debated and voted on. But her bill would um, legislate the 2050 target, so uh, you know basically gazump all the dillying dilly dallying that's going on and just say no no we're going to you know commit to it in in legislation and it would do a few other things as well like it would establish a um a kind of an independent panel which would uh, look at uh, the climate change situation and would 
make an independent assessment of risk, essentially depoliticize an area that's just been absolutely mired in politics. As I said at the start, it's kind of like the policy area that broke the polity. We've seen so many political leaders fall. We've seen so many missteps. We've seen so much timidity, and we see that still. Uh, are you um, do, one? Let me ask you this, undergraduate. Do you think Morrison will commit to 2050 before um, before going to Glasgow in November? And perhaps even before going to the G7 in, um, in, in the UK in July or June, I think it is. I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, which is about the Biden administration. And it's great to see them sign back into the Paris Accord. Um, and the policy actions all very important. But, but that shift in narrative, that fact that American government statements about the science are going to come out with reputation. I feel like, um, the 6th of January, that awful day in the United States, uh, has given us hope for truth again. We've got the potential for actually evaluating and seeing science and the understanding of these really difficult problems will be better enunciated, we'll understand the narrative, we'll see what the consequences of our actions might be. And, and I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the Morrison government to keep running away from using the phrase climate change or from acting on it in a real way. So I think there'd have to be a chance of a 2050 target. I think Zali Stegall's Climate Act Bill is a very sensible approach. I think the government um, is being given an opportunity here to do something to, to as you say, depoliticise what is a really difficult area for both sides of politics. And there'd be tremendous merit in taking it forward. The criticism of Zali's bill, of course, is that it's not it's not enough and not fast mm. enough. But I think the mechanisms within it, it's been very well considered. The mechanisms within it, I think, give us an opportunity to really appreciate both the risks and the benefits for us as a population in really taking some significant action. Yeah, look, I, I don't think you should, anyone should underestimate just how hardline the Americans are going to be from now on. Yep. I mean, the appointment of John Kerry was fundamentally important. I mean, he's a climate envoy. He's been given cabinet status. And if you look at his personal career, he's done the rest. Mm. You know, he's run for president. He's been secretary of state. And he passionately believes in the environment and the need to move forward. And this is going to be the one, the defining feature of his career. And he will drag an awful lot of people with him doing that. And he's already got a fair bit of support from the business community, from state, from states, from major cities and so on. And I think um, <clears throat> in the context of the global environment, uh, with a strong US lead, you'll get a competitive response from Johnson in the UK, from the Europeans. I think Z will even move. I mean, I think you'll see an enormous momentum build in the course of this year. I mean, the Biden summit is scheduled for April. Then you've got the G7, then you've yep. got the, the COP26 in, in November. Um, you know, there's three key points, yep. I think, and in that sense you've got three key stepping stones that that um, somebody like uh, Kerry's going to ratchet it up. And so in those terms, I think, you know, I don't see why the government should resist for once listening to a private member's bill, taking it on notice. There's no downside to them doing that, and to my mind. I mean, there's downside in continuing to resist it, and being, you know, even more of a Luddite and being more of a laggard in global terms. So I do think there's a chance that this bill will get a hearing and it will be a platform on which, I mean, if the Prime Minister was gracious, he could adopt the 2050 objective on the basis of a parliamentary debate on this bill. But, um, you know, he's not that sort of <laughs> person. No, so. that's true, but he does he does want to win. I mean, he has, he's, you know, everyone recognises he's pragmatic. Morris, he's very pragmatic. He's, he's, he'll do what is necessary to, you know, to stay mm. on top um, within limits, presumably. But um, 
one of his limits is is the Nats. I mean, they are getting increasingly tetchy about what they can see happening as well, which is this drift. I mean, there's a view that Morrison is slowly sort of, you know, shuffling his feet across to a more rational position on this. You've been the leader of the opposition. You know how hard it is to manage this coalition mm. and uh, the various interests within it. Um, is he legitimately worried about the coalition breaking apart or, or about a, you know, a massively untidy internal brawl? There's no doubt that the Nats have been given <coughs> a fairly free run to pursue coal-fired power stations and uh, and make uh, a lot of other related comments. Um, my approach, uh, and I had a very difficult issue initially with wool and the wool bailing out the wool industry, which I refused to do, but we settled that on day one in an internal meeting and the, everyone was locked into a position that we went forward with. To let it drift such that there's now a public division about these things, it's much harder for him to, to fix that. And you can see that uh, some of those who are stirring the gnats are using this issue as a way of, of perhaps changing the leadership of the National Party, not so, much helping, not so much helping uh, our uh, Prime Minister. So, um, Are you talking about Barnaby there or are you talking about well, people outside the gnats? Well, I think they they come together, Barnaby, Canavan, uh, um, Christensen, I mean, whichever way those points fall, I mean, they are destabilising of the leadership of the National Party and I think if the opportunity were there, they'd, they'd have a run at changing it. But that is counterproductive to the standing of the government as a whole and the sense of disunity, which we know is going to cost them fairly, fairly significantly. So I would think that Morrison would be better to try and just move as a leader and, and pull them along than uh, let that process run because it's only going to get more and more counterproductive, I think, from his point of view. They've got a, had a long run and now we, we, want, we want the government, they want the government to build a new coal-fired power station in the Hunter and another one in the northern northern uh, yeah. Queensland and, and the banks are not interested, no. the insurers are not interested. No. No it's got to be government-funded. It'll be a stranded asset within a decade. <laughs> Why would you go down that path, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but, what we're, but what we're looking for here then really is, is leadership, the kind of hmm. leadership that involves taking a risk, acting in the best interests of the country. It's not let, much let, of a let, risk, I don't think, in terms of the broader electorate. But well, this is but, a judgment I mean, that he's uh, got. Yeah, to make. I mean, I mean, as in taking what the mm. leader perceives as risks of an internal fight or whatever mm. it is. But what I want to ask you, and I'm happy for, for all of you to comment on this: Do we expect too little from our leaders in this regard? I mean, are, are we too inclined, particularly as a long-term member of the press gallery? I ask myself this sometimes: Are we too inclined to see these problems from the point of view of the politicians managing them and their political? Futures, and we put too much weight on that, not enough weight on the on the other side, which is what actually needs to be done and what leadership needs to be shown. I think the issue is that we've been, been uh, you know paralysed for the last decade or more by lack of leadership, and this is on both sides. I mean, you know, Labor have caved in several times uh, on issues regarding climate and energy, where if they'd actually you know kept their metal during that time. Uh, they could have pushed through. And mm. uh, and we saw what happened with Kevin Rudd about this. Uh, we've seen other examples of it. Uh, it's consistency of leadership based on principle. As John says, you set the principle at the beginning and you follow it through. If, if we saw that sort of leadership in Australia, everyone would be happy. What we've seen is chopping and changing because of perceived political risk and because they are just totally dominated by focus groups uh, and marginal electorate responses. 
and not on leading on principle. If we had leading on principle again, I think the Australian population would follow. Couldn't agree more. I think leadership is so badly needed. And you know, John and I have done some work uh, in the last year or so thinking about the, the mix of threats that are facing the future of humanity. And it sounds like a dramatic thing to say, but if you read the Climate Council report, it becomes really very relevant right now. There is, there's ne- probably never been a more important moment in contemporary Australian history for, for serious political leadership. And it's been decades since we saw it. And that's what I was saying earlier, being able to understand what the future might look like. And that means the future if we don't act and the future if we do act and what the pathway we need to take to get there. Yeah, that, that um, future if we don't act has just been underplayed so much it has. By, by short-term politics, hasn't it? And I think that I, I mentioned it at the beginning when we were talking about the Bowen-Butler thing. I don't think the electorate's going to engage in the drama of the Labor Party anymore. And the, similarly, the drama of the National Party, I think we're over that. I think 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic following on from that Black Summer gets all of us thinking it's time for an imaginative future. It's actually time to define where we're going and how we're going to get there and to to bring us together to, to actually achieve that. Uh, that's what we're all, I think, crying out for. I think we'll see that reflected in the – I would hope we see that reflected in the next election. Last word to you, John. And and, and can I invite you just to append, uh, sort of add to that also just a quick observation about the economy, which is a slight change of pace, but mm. just I'd be interested to just get your final thoughts on that question about leadership but then also about just whether where we are with the economy as JobKeeper comes out and how, how risky you think that is. Well, I agree with the comments about leadership and I think not only is it, it is important right now that we get that leadership, but the opportunity has never been greater mm-hmm. for that leadership. I mean, I think if you stand out in those terms and argue the case, say, on climate change, where globally most people are saying this is the crucial decade. If we don't do it by 2030, we aren't going to do it. Mm. And that means that... Each country's got to respond in its own terms. But having said that, we've got a long way to go. Not only because we are, not not only because of our emissions per capita, but because we are a major exporter of of fossil fuels. We carry a global responsibility and we need to recognise that. As far as the economy goes, I think the government's done well so far in the sense that things haven't been as bad as they thought they might be. But I'm still not convinced that we haven't, we haven't got a rough period to go through yet. I think this year, when you fully disengage from JobKeeper and you start to see whether there are zombie companies or, you know, uh, fake jobs and and so on, um, I think there's a long way to go in that. And, of course, our big constraint is that we've done well in terms of managing the virus, certainly in the top ten in the world, but uh, mostly because we've been an island and Mm -hmm. we've been able to isolate ourselves by closing the border. And if you look at the numbers of, of recorded cases in recent days in any state, they're all those who've returned travellers in in, uh, in qu- hotel quarantine. It tells you that the risks are there. As soon as you open those borders, you lose control of that process. And you've seen that experience in Europe uh, in the United States where the borders have been much more porous than mm. they have here. And I think that's going to be the big challenge because how we handle another wave spurred on by a breach in that border or as we soften the border and then there are consequences of that, and that will have very significant economic effects. So although our numbers look okay right now, I still think this year in economic terms is a very significant challenge. The transition this year is a big challenge. And, um, you know, and one of the reasons why I think the Prime Minister will go in around September is that he'll go through the budget, hold things together as best he can, and the worst of it may, may come in the latter part of the year. 
And so um, I'm, I'm very nervous about how the economic circumstances will unfold. But we have been innovative. We've certainly done things that nobody else in the world has done, like JobKeeper. We know that it's had a lot of flaws and that uh, too much has gone to some people and not enough to others. And some key sectors that were impacted by closing the border, education, universities and international tourism, I mean, they're not going to come back quickly. And they are big employers, are significant Mm. exporters. And uh, we have got a long way to go to actually face that reality, I think. And uh, the long-term consequences of eroding the university sector are very significant as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Look, thanks for that. I think it's really interesting observations at the end, particularly about the political uh, opportunities or threats, as depending on how they're seen by the Prime Minister. As you say, how the economy pans out is going to be a critical factor on whether we do end up being in an election this year or perhaps uh, going in, in longer into uh, the early part of next year. Uh, Arnie Greta Hunter, John Houston, Ken Baldwin, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage again. I've got to say that properly, democracy sausage. Uh, again, it's uh, been terrific to get your thoughts. Uh, we'll watch the, how this issue plays out and let's hope that we're going to see some some progress, perhaps some movement. I don't know. It might be a bit naive or optimistic, but there is, there is, you know, a little bit shifting at the moment. As you say, the Biden administration uh, being the big, big atmospheric change, and we'll just hope that uh, we can actually see a bit of, bit of progress in an area that's been absolutely stalled for just way too long. That's your lot for this week, or at least for this early uh, part of the week in Democracy Sausage. I'll be back later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra. Until then, bye for now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.